welcome to the mini break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, June 10th, a bit of a calm after the storm as we are finally completed with our second Grand Slam of the year. The French Open has come and gone. So many things to take away from it on both the men's and women's side. Obviously, we're going to focus on the finals today, some of the bigger takeaways. Uh, But of course, we will have a GSP later in the week talking about the biggest storylines, the narratives coming out of the French Open, what we'll be watching as we head into the grass season, and then ultimately the final hardcourt stretch. Joining me today to break down the two finals we saw this weekend, I am so excited to finally have him on the podcast. If you are a big fan of tennis Twitter, you have certainly seen the tweets from at MZemek uh, throughout the years. He is a writer, of course, of the wonderful book Novak Djokovic, Making the Rough Places Plain. And of course, you can find all of his work nowadays at TennisAccent.com. Matt Zemek, welcome to the Mini Break Pod. Thank you so much for having me. I think my first question to you before we even get into the tennis, I mean, you're at like three, four articles a day during the Grand Slams. How's your brain? Uh, you know, my brain's okay. It's really the body that uh, hits the wall. <laughs> and uh, since I'm out here in the Pacific time zone, I mean, Pete, now now if you're technical about it, Arizona is mountain time, but, but Phoenix is <laughs> operating on Pacific time for anybody who wants to nitpick me on that. So French Open, that means a lot of these matches have been starting at, you know, 2.15 a.m. And, of course, you know, living in the West, you expect that during the middle of the second week of a major, you think, ah, I can get up at five instead of two. But because (laughs) of the rain, the match, you know, matches were still starting at two, three o'clock. So really glad to have survived this particular fortnight. This may be the nerdiest part of the conversation, but I'm fascinated by this part of your process. So you're up live, 2.15 a.m., watching these matches. You're not recording them. You're not watching replays later. I try to get up as early as possible. And, and in full candor, didn't I didn't get up right when the two women's semifinals <laughs> started at 2.15 on Friday. I, I got up at like 2.50 and considered myself lucky. Um, neither The first set, neither match had not ended. Um, so, you know, I, tr- I do try to wing it and, you know, especially in the first week, it is just not realistic for me to be getting up, uh, at two, uh, or staying up through every night. I just wouldn't make it because I do have a day job, you know, and that, and this gets into the, the economics and the logistics of tennis blogging that, you know, if you, if I was paid a full-time salary, this was my full-time job. Well, then of course I would arrange the particulars of my schedule so that, you know, I would, I would go to bed at, you know, 5 PM, wake up at 1:30 AM and, you know, be there for the full 12, 13 hours, whatever. But since I don't get, you know, a regular paycheck for blog for blogging at tennis with an accent, I depend on contributions from readers and listeners. Uh, then, you know, I have to, you know, cut a few corners and just try to wake up as early as my body allows. My body was pretty good. My body was responding to that uh, subconscious call for tennis around 315, uh, 320, most of the days of this fortnight. Um, But since it's not an automatic paycheck, uh, you know, twice a month, uh, I can't just get up at two or or stay up through the night. So that's that's the limitation of this business when you are blogging independently and and you're trying to rattle the tin cup. So right off the bat, Westoff, I need an applause for that sort of performance. 
I mean, seriously, it, it's so impressive how much content you guys at Tennis with an X and are able to churn out, particularly article-wise. Again, it's not, it felt like you guys had six, seven a day, which through this French Open, given how many storylines there are, I, you know, speaking for myself and all of us fans, I know we really appreciate it, so thank you for that. But that is brutal. 215, I mean... I guess through the first rounds of the Grand Slams, because there's so much tennis, you can kind of get away with waking up a little bit later, and you're still going to catch a ton of matches. But I mean, oh my god. Two, I mean, so when you're setting that alarm, what time? You're like, I got to go to bed by 10. I need at least four hours tonight. Well, you know, so my regular job is I edit, you know, uh, sports at a NBA and NFL site, and uh, shifts go to 11 p.m. a few nights. Yeah. Uh, in fact, you know, so... I was able to get away with it to, uh, on Sunday for the uh, French Open men's final because that actually did start at 6 a.m. I mean, I was able to sleep in until 5:30. You know what? What a, what a godsend! Um, <laughs> but uh, but you know, so the the first week at the French with all those 2 a.m. Pacific time starts, and then uh, you know the night sessions at the Australian Open, which are you know midnight lasting into 3 3:30. Those kill me. Uh, so really, first first week of the Australian Open, I just ha- I I go to bed and I tell Sakib, my partner, tennis with an accent. I tell him, you know, you're in the East, so if a Federer if Federer gets upset at, in the in the first week of the Australian Open, you know, as he did to Andrea Seppi four years ago, um, but and he's playing a night session match. I tell Sakib, hey, you got to get that one. I have to I have to get get a little bit of sleep. So. That's how it goes when you're independent blogging. If it's if you're getting a paycheck, all of this goes away because you know I would follow every last second of tennis and I would totally adjust my life to it. But if the paycheck's not there, you can't adjust all of your life. Only seventy four percent. Yeah, no, I, and I'm sure Stats Insider helped you come up with that seventy four percent number. Um, yeah, I comp- yeah, I I agree. Like we so appreciate to our listeners, tennis with an accent. You can find it obviously on tennis Twitter, but it's tennisaccent.com. Uh, go contribute to them. Help Matt continue to do what he does because you look throughout uh, just this major. So many great pieces coming from you guys, and that's kind of why I wanted to have you on today. You know, I rather than read off some of my some of my favorite points I got from your articles, I figured why not just call the author himself, see if he's willing to come on. So what I want to do today, talk about the men's and women's finals, break down those matches, what we saw tennis-wise, and then talk about some of the storylines coming out of them. That sound good to you? Absolutely. I love it. Well, then let's rock and roll. Let's start with the women's final because I think there was uh, – actually, even before we get into any of the tennis, I want to set the stage for the women's final. Um, one of my favorite pieces you wrote this week, uh, you know, Roland Garros 2019's Tough Scheduling Truths, uh, and I think we saw that especially towards the end of this tournament with rain plaguing them. I think it was Wednesday was when play got canceled. Uh, that obviously pushed everything back, and then, you know, the Djokovic team match, they – go halfway and there's they get pushed back that pushes uh just there a, a big cluster we'll say of scheduling conflicts and just you know for for our listeners to set the scene can you kind of talk about what you spoke about in your article some of the the realizations of what the flaws were in the Roland Garros scheduling Absolutely and so if for those for those who really follow this stuff on a granular level this won't be news but for those who really don't quite 
understand why the major to the three non-Wimbledon major tournaments can't get their act together, it, it, here is the essential point to drill down to and emphasize. The reason why you have scheduling imbalances during the second week of majors, and this is what I wrote about in the column that you referenced, uh, it's that men, two men's quarterfinals are played on Tuesday. Okay, so you might not be aware of why that's such a big deal. So here's why. When you play men's quarterfinals on Tuesday, you're also playing men's quarterfinals on Wednesday. So that right there means that you're splitting up the men and the women on separate days for their quarterfinals. And this is unlike Wimbledon, which, you know, due to its own schedule and obviously, you know, middle Sunday followed by manic Monday, Wimbledon reorganizes and resets the draws. So that's quirky, but nevertheless, at Wimbledon in the second week, you get all the women on one day, all the men on another day. So the, the women and the men have balanced amounts of rest in that second week. But the other three majors all play at least two men's quarterfinals on Tuesday, and that right there is what opens the, the door to all these imbalances. You'll get at least one man, if not two, at the three non-Wimbledon majors in the second week, getting at least a two-day break between one of their matches. At the U.S. Open and the French Open, that two-day break is between the Tuesday quarterfinal and the Friday semifinal. In Australia, it's, more, it's, between, it's for one man, and it's between the Thursday semifinal, since there's one Thursday semifinal, and the Sunday final. So the women, on the other hand, while, the men, uh, while at least one man is getting a two-day break, the, at least two women get zero-day breaks between a quarterfinal and a semifinal. So, again, why is it playing men's quarterfinals on a Tuesday such a problem? The, if the women all played their quarterfinals on Tuesday at every major, as Wimbledon does, then you wouldn't have women playing quarterfinals on Wednesday. It's basically a Tuesday-Wednesday flip-flop if you if you if you took the two women's quarterfinals currently played on Wednesday because there are two men's quarterfinals on Tuesday and you flipped the, those two other women's quarterfinals from Wednesday to Tuesday and you took those two men's quarterfinals from Tuesday over to Wednesday then you instantly get balanced rest balanced scheduling and so to drive home the point relative to what we saw with Dominic Team and Rafael Nadal in the men's final with, you know, Nadal from Wednesday through Saturday, a four day period played one match team had to play four straight days, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Now, Rafael Nadal is, you know, the best clay court player, men or women, you know, better than Chris Everett, best clay quarter we have ever seen and ever will see. He's a better player than Dominic team. He's a better clay court player than Dominic team. That's the number one reason why Rafa won. So I don't want to plant this notion in anyone's mind that that scheduling was the reason why Rafa won. But can we certainly acknowledge that this profound imbalance in rest and play and court time did contribute to why the third and fourth sets were one-way traffic for Nadal? We can at least acknowledge that. And it goes to not so much that Nadal had more rest – but it really the structural flaw is that if we had the men's quarterfinals all on Wednesday at the same time, two on Chatrier, two on Longland, then, you know, they, so they, they obviously would have been washed out uh, in, at this tournament. 
but the essential observation to make is all of the four quarterfinals and all of the eight quarterfinalists would have been on the same terrain. And because there were two quarterfinals on Tuesday, that's what provided the imbalance. So quarterfinals, men's quarterfinals on Tuesdays at the three non-Wimbledon majors in the second week, that is the essential central structural flaw. And I emphasize that word structural. You know, there was a big furor about the women not getting Chatrier uh, on uh, Friday for the semifinals. A lot of people felt, oh, that was a bad ad hoc in the moment decision by organizers. And you could certainly have a conversation or debate about that. But the important point is that Friday's specific decisions are far less of a problem than the structural flaw of putting those two men's quarterfinals on Tuesday, which is what opens the gateway toward all of the subsequent imbalances that you saw over the rest of the second week. If you get rid of the men's quarterfinals on Tuesday, you get rid of not all, but most of these imbalances, not just for men's court time and rest, but also for the women's court assignments and time slots in their semifinals. I completely, I mean, first of all, beautifully said, I think you covered 99% of things in that, in that argument or in that argument in, in stating how that went. I also think you kind of touched on this. It sucks. Most importantly, that we even have to talk about this, right? The fact that we saw Ashley Barty break through on a surface where she had never, you know, had that sort of success before. The fact that we see Rafa win his 12th freaking French open title, that Dominic team makes his second straight final beats Novak Djokovic in a five set thriller. You know, we want to talk about the tennis and it sucks that we have to talk about something as stupid as scheduling now, in the article you wrote, you mentioned how, uh, you know, right off the bat, right now it sucks that the French Open doesn't have a roofed court, but that's going to be changing soon. You talked about how it sucks that the French Open doesn't have lights yet. Well, that's going to be changing soon. So you can get those little things out of the way. In terms of, you know, the the, quarter, the men's and women's quarterfinals, you know, switching those days. And I believe in your article, you talked about having the women's third round being on its own. I know Wimbledon does do that, but do you think, I guess, fans attending these tournaments would be upset by the fact that there's not a balance of men's and women's matches on the same day? And I do have other questions, but I guess we can kind of start there. Well, you know, it's an excellent point, and it gets to the crux of the matter. You know, one of our recent uh, guests on the Tennis with an Accent podcast is Miguel Siabra. You might know him as the MC for the Estoril Open in Portugal every year. He used to be a contributor to Pete Bodo's Tennis World a decade ago uh, when I frequented that blog. Uh, now, Siabra and a number of other tennis insiders, you know, people who just with a lot of familiarity with the industry over a long period of time, they've said, you know, whenever the, the other non-Wimbledon majors have tried to put a WTA-only ticket or order of play on the schedule, those, those uh, attempts have not worked out very well. So this, this is about money, and it's about television, as it usually is at the majors. There is an unwillingness to have WTA-only quarterfinal sessions. And, you know, what this really gets to is women's tennis, you know, doesn't, hasn't been fetching the, the, the marketing or the rating dollars that men's tennis has. And obviously the big three have a lot to do with that on the ATP side. But women's tennis has been objectively great over the past 
two years. And, they, and, this, and this is with this is without Serena Williams, mostly, you know, because of her pregnancy and, and also her health problems. Women's tennis has been wonderful to watch. So, you know, when, when we considered the notion of, well, fans won't come out to see the WTA. And this was a problem at this French Open. Uh, this, you know, you, Federer and Nadal would play on Chatrier, and then you'd have Garbina Muguruza and Sloane Stevens, two major champions, playing a fourth-round match on a Sunday, and the stadium was what thirty percent full, if that. So, you know, you if people tell me a WTA-only quarterfinal session, which is exactly how you create an, a balanced and fairer schedule for players, if people are telling me that's not going to fly. I'm not going to dispute that point, but I'm going to reply with, okay, why is that? And why shouldn't tennis, including and especially the WTA and Steve Simon, why shouldn't we fight to make that reality better instead of just accepting that, oh, the TV and the money aren't in our favor right now. Let's just accept the imbalanced and unfair scheduling structure as we have it. So there's so much quality in women's tennis. I, I don't know why it's, it is seen as such a Rubik's cube uh, that, you know, Oh, we can't figure this out. We can't market women's tennis better. The quality is so good. It, it, this is a product that should be able to be marketed. I will make this concession. Uh, Andrew Burton, who is a consultant to us uh, on tennis with an accent. Uh, he did point out that over the past 10 majors, including this one at Roland Garros, no single women's player, not not Osaka, not Halep, not Serena, has made more than three major semifinals. So 10 majors with four semifinals apiece, that's 40 slots, and yet not one woman has made more than three semifinals. So it really brings up the point that w- what is hurting women's tennis economically and in terms of attendance, it's not so much the lack of quality, because as we know, the quality has been great. It's that you're not seeing familiar matchups on a repeated basis in quarters, semis, and finals. The matchups are always turning over. And while that is certainly fresh and new to a point, viewers and fans do want some degree of familiarity. It's not as though they need the same person to always win, but it would sure help if, for example, you know, Osaka and Hallett played in the semifinals in like two majors every year, or if uh, Petra Kvitova and Serena played in the quarterfinals, two or three majors every year, it it wouldn't really matter who won or who lost, but just as long as these top names can recirculate and have reunions often enough for people to notice, that would certainly help. So there are certainly explanations for why the WTA isn't, as quite as much of a ratings magnet and why people are afraid that WTA only quarterfinal sessions, you know, could be um, ticket selling problems for the majors. But all that being said, it's the 21st century. Your product's good. Let's just try to market it better and bring the fairer scheduling model along with it. 
you talk about how it would be beneficial to see the top names uh, go against each other more often. I'm going to disagree with you. Now, in the short term, I think you're right. I think in the long term, the fact that we're seeing names, and I'm sure I'm going to forget some here, but like Barty, like a Sabalenka, obviously Anisimova, Andreescu, uh, Sofia Kennan, there are so many young, talented players right now circulating through the WTA that I think, you know, this year you don't recognize Anisimova unless you're a hardcore fan. I also think for those who follow tennis closely, <coughs> excuse me, it might be a little bit refreshing to see so many new young faces, to see the fact that our game will be in great hands moving forward these next five, ten years. <coughs> oh, Jesus, this is just such a passionate topic. Um, but this idea that I mean, so I agree. Addressing the structural balance, letting the WTA sell on its own, I I agree with you that I think it's in a place where it certainly can. Another way, maybe addressing the structural imbalance, something I've never fully understood, other than the fact I get that it will sacrifice it will sacrifice Saturday at the majors if you don't have a you know a professional singles final. But why not just play the men's and women's both on Sunday? It feels like you buy an extra day for everyone if you end up doing that. Uh, I agree. And I would piggyback on that by saying this, that, you know, let's say, let's say just hypothetically that you did go to uh, women's only tickets in in the quarterfinals, uh, not just the semifinals, Um, you know, doing that. And if the women, you know, did suffer in terms of ticket sales or TV ratings, you know, I, I think one of the fears from the WTA's side in this is that if the WTA did play all four quarterfinals on the same day, Tuesday, the second week of a major, and the ratings and ticket sales weren't good, I think people inside, and I don't know this for a fact, but I mean, this is kind of informed speculation on my part. I think the reason that you haven't seen this happen at the three non-Wimbledon majors is that if the, if that, if that did happen, you know, the WTA on one day and uh, the ratings weren't good, that that would be a, a gateway for um, the w- women's pay compensation to be lowered uh, okay. relative to the men. And that in any subsequent divvying up of, of television rights for WTA tennis at, you know, non-major tournaments where the WTA is, is involved in the tournaments, uh, unlike, you know, the ITF at the majors. You know, that, so that would be a, a an income hit and also a, a damage to the reputation. So circling back, wh- I agree with playing both a women's final and a men's final on Sunday because as a response to that very notion that the women would be perceived as inferior, playing a women's final on a Sunday, especially if you play two Thursday um, semifinals as they do at, at – uh, Mo- at the th- at the three uh, majors, other than um, or at, really at, the, at all four, if you played women's semifinals on Thursday and then you took two days off and you played a final on Sunday, you could do best of five in the final. And, and and so simply by playing a best of five final, you would immediately in that one stroke cut against the notion that the women are inferior. And so whereas a lot of people think oh, w- women's pay should be the same as men, you know, within the current structure, I, I do think that women's tennis and the WTA do need to think about playing major finals, not the other rounds, but major finals 
best of five sets. I think taking that one step would really change the conversation in healthy and positive ways. And I, and I, and I think that the, the people in leadership positions don't yet grasp that. And I think just making that one change, which would naturally be facilitated by a Sunday final, uh, I think that that solves a lot of issues all at once. Oh, you're opening the best of five Pandora's box. I don't know if we want to do that. We've already gone 20 minutes on scheduling. Now we're completely off the rails. Um, yeah, I, yeah, that's that's true. I also think you open up Saturday, and should there be a rain delay on, say, the second Tuesday, well, now you know you have another day to play with, and it gives each tournament a margin for error. And, of course, you never want a tournament to be plagued by rain, but let's prepare for that scenario a little bit better. I also love the idea of just spending my Sundays watching tennis. Of course, I'm a tennis nerd. I imagine I'm speaking for you as well when we would do that anyway. You know, it could be challenger finals, and we'll be watching those on Sunday you already talked about can i also add this that if you if you put both singles finals at majors on sunday and yes it would leave saturday open in terms of singles but what this can do is i agree more doubles finals on saturday you know or the the juniors that too so you know I, i know at the u.s open at least one if not two of the doubles finals are on friday I think it's the mixed, and then I think they play one of the doubles finals on Saturday and one of the doubles finals on Sunday, but one of them's on Friday. So, you know, it moved, moved that Friday doubles final, mixed doubles final, over to Saturday make, and make, have a doubles and juniors heavy card. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if ESPN would do that because at the U.S. Open, ESPN is, you know, doing college football that's not doing tennis. But like Tennis Channel could take a Saturday for high profile doubles and juniors finals. That seems pretty good to me. So uh, there are ways to arrange the pieces on the chessboard in ways that grow the game and show more of the game, especially doubles. Uh, you know, there are ways that this is one of the hidden things about revising the schedule for singles is that within and through and from these singles schedule revisions, you can create new television and revenue opportunities for doubles, which I think is exciting. So I think there are just ways to lead on these issues that a lot of the powers that be in tennis haven't considered yet. I completely agree with you. I'd add, and this is a personal note, but throw in a college tennis event on Saturday. You're looking for places to go. I am sure we could find a way to get the people at the ITA involved at the majors. I'm sure, you know, that's a win-win. It feels like for everyone um, yeah, I, I completely echo a lot of, you know, if not all of your sentiment from what you just mentioned. And I do want to talk about the tennis, but any final thoughts on the scheduling thing? Anything you didn't get out that you want to? Uh, you know, I just just the simple idea that these are structural problems. They're not about, you know, oh, they assigned this person to that court at that time on that day. It's not about the day to day decisions. It's about the structure. That's the main thing I want to emphasize. Yeah, I completely agree with you. It's correctable mistakes, right? That's why we want to get rid of them. Yep. 
Yeah. Well, then, with that in mind, as I started off uh, this part of the conversation, let's talk about that women's singles final played on Saturday. Ashley Barty, I believe, was playing her third straight day of tennis in this one uh, versus uh, Marketa Vondrasova. Obviously, both players, a tremendous run to the final. And, you know, in this match, Barty ends up winning 6-1, 6-3. And a lot of times you say, okay, you know, maybe a storyline like that doesn't reflect the closeness of the match. Um, but to me, it felt like as much variety as Vondrasova had, and variety being the word you mentioned a ton in your piece about the uh, the final, which I believe it was, it's bar- time for the Barty party. What was it that you ended with a really great pun? I, I have to find it. Um, and I'm always a fan of a good fun. Oh, let the Ash Bash or the Barty party roll on. I mean, that's really what happened in this final. Yes, and it was Ash Saturday, not Ash Wednesday. Uh, in, in that final, uh, yeah, you know, isn't it great, right? Oh God! So um, the the thing that strikes me about Barty, and it struck me in Miami when I saw her run to the title. I mean, you could just see the light going on. And you know, whenever anyone compares any person in tennis to Roger Federer, some people will say, "Oh, come on, there's only one Federer." Well, wait, wait a minute. It's not so much that Barty's going to win 20 major tiles or anything like that. It's, it's a much more simple, elemental comparison. And the, that comparison is simply this. Federer, at, an, at a young age, he knew he could hit a lot of shots. He knew he could shape the ball in all sorts of different ways, much as Grigor Dimitrov and Philip Kohlschreiber can. You know, they could shape the ball from any angle. Just They have that gift. So, but Federer learned and grasped at an early age, how to align his shots, how to play patterns, you know, when to hit this shot, when to hit that one, being patient with your game instead of overthinking. Uh, And once that light went on, you know, everything fell into place. So that has happened with Barty. It also, uh, Bianca Andrescu is another example of a player who knows how to play patterns, line up her, a very diverse array of shots. And so with Barty, you know, there's not really, any one player that she evokes because she's every player, you know, she can make those bended knee pickups of, of hard returns, much as Angelique Kerber and uh, Agnieszka Radvanska did. And she can slice the way Justine Anna can, and she can serve, you know, powerfully uh, with a small frame. So it's that she's, there's no one shot that defines her. You could argue the slice, especially an offensive slice that she used on clay against Vondrushova and against others. But really, the, the strength of Barty is that everything's a strength. The strength isn't found so much in one shot, but that she hits every shot well. There really isn't a flawed shot. I mean, you could perhaps nitpick the backhand a little bit, but she can hit hard and flat. She can hit topspin. She can carve that slice, drop shot best volleyer on the tour in singles and a, a, a well above average, if not great serve. So just that capacity to do everything well without having a weakness, you know, that was the perfect antidote to Vondrushova's lefty top spin and her drop shots and the unique things that the 19 year old brought to the table. So the lesson is, as I've written at tennisaccent.com right after the men's final I did a, a, a tournament review piece. Barty's lesson to the tour and to the tennis community in general, learn every shot. And it might take time to learn every shot and really practice every single stroke in the book. But if you have every shot, you are ready 
for every situation, more precisely, you're ready to, to know exactly what to do at every spot on the court. If you're 10 feet behind the baseline, if you're on the baseline, if you're drawn into inside the service box, uh, if you're in between the back of the service box and the baseline, you know, in that no man's land, if you're at any area on the court, if you develop every shot, you'll know what to do. Like when, when Von Dushevo would hit her signature drop shot, Barty had a readily consistent play, which she almost always executed perfectly. And that was to slice the drop shot into the corner. It was usually the deuce corner, sometimes the ag corner, but it was always the corner. And she would, pr she pretty much almost always painted that corner. And because it was a slice approach, as opposed to a drive approach, Vondrusheva could not generate a lot of pace on her next follow-up shot. And that gave Barty the ability to put away an overhead or a volley at net. So it was just a masterstroke in being able to hit every shot as the antidote, the, the neutralizer for um, an opponent's particular set of qualities. You talk about all of those skills. I think one that kind of prevails over all of these things Ashley Barty can do on the court her patience. Now, for Vondrasova, you mentioned Vondrasova, a lefty. I wouldn't say she's ever going to blow an opponent off the court with her firepower, but she will open up angles. She will take balls early down the line. As you mentioned, she's perfectly happy throwing in drop shots, you know, making it a physical battle. Her thought being, I'm going to track down your approach shot and put that passing shot, beat you to the spot. And for Ashley Barty, it was that she was so patient. You know, she didn't come in on the wrong slices. She waited for the exact right ball to approach on. And as you mentioned, whether it was a drop shot that she then, you know, you talk about the finesse it takes to guide a forehand slice into the corner when you're sliding on the clay, whether it was that, whether it was opening up, you know, getting around the ball, hitting inside out, inside in forehands to keep Vondrasova off balance. I mean, Barty, her double skills. She's a doubles Grand Slam champion coming into this. She goes 15 of 20 on the net in this match. You know, really efficient 13 of 17 on her second serve points. There just weren't a lot of ways for Vondrasova to win easy points for herself. It was very hard for her to hurt Barty at all in this match. And I think that speaks to, as you mentioned, Ashley Barty does a little bit of everything well. She was just so solid. And you could really see in this match, I guess what impressed me most throughout her run, I never imagined she would be able to move as well as she does on the clay. Yeah, I mean, that's an excellent point in that if you can know how to hit every shot, but if you can't move to the point on the court where you can you can execute your shots properly, you know, then it's not all going to come together. I mean, I think of uh, Karolina Pliskova, especially on grass, that, you know, her big game should be a better fit on grass than it actually is. But opponents have learned to slice and dice her. So with her big frame, you know, she's having to bend down to retrieve those slices. So she's not hitting shots from an ideal strike zone or contact point. And so, you know, what, what on paper looks like a game tailor made for grass uh, doesn't become that way. So if you, exactly, Barty's ability to move properly and get herself in position to hit the ball at the right contact point that she needs. That's a that's a, a very important point. I also think, and you're looking at this match from the Vondrasova angle. You know, look throughout her run, she matched up with 
you know, so many different styles of player, uh, you know, a Petra Martic, who's going to track down so many balls, work you with angles to open up down the line for herself. Joe Conta, who's just, you know, swinging away at all points. You have to weather that storm. I guess what my takeaway from her in this match, and I kind of mentioned it a little bit earlier, I still, you know, drop shots aside, which on clay are, if anything, more valuable than ever. I still don't see a go-to weapon for her at this point. Now, again, she's another player who does everything well, but something that's going to win her a lot of free points, at least at this stage of her career. Would you say that's a fair assessment? Yeah, and I, and I think that the, the th- key with Vandersaw is that, you know, she's 19, almost 20. Give her a few years for her body to, to get a, a little more muscular, and, you know, she'll be able to get, you know, m- more mustard on her ground strokes. Uh, that you know her top spin can be used to even greater effect, especially on clay. So I think you know with Vandrusheva, she'll have several years to become physically stronger and more imposing. And when that just just that process uh, will eventually give her more options. But yeah, you mentioned right now, and so like I would not expect uh, similar results to what she's had on clay uh, in the next several months. I would expect a come down. Not that it would be a disappointment in any way, shape, or form, but it would just be a, a natural, organic cycle of the tour catching up to her a little bit. Yeah, and look, she's up to number 16 in the rankings when they come out uh, tomorrow. Obviously, this is uh, she's got to be ecstatic to have cracked the top 20 before she turns 20 years old. You know, she really did have a run of success coming into this event. So, you know, it wasn't totally out of nowhere. I believe she's made, what, three other quarterfinals. I think she made the quarterfinals of Indian Wells earlier this year, uh, a quarterfinal in the in the run-up to this as well. So, yeah, she's she's played some uh, really outstanding times. Quarterfinals in Miami and Indian Wells and at the Italian Open. She beat Halep twice. That says it all. Yeah, exactly. And so I agree. Tremendous upside for her. Just uh, it speaks to the fact of how many young, talented players there really are on the women's side. But to to kind of wrap up uh, the women's final, you look at Ashley Barty now. She's up to a career high number two in the rankings. Obviously, she made the quarterfinal at the Australian Open this year. She wins Miami. She wins the French Open. Uh, given her all-court game, you know she'll be a threat at Wimbledon. I mean, is she now the leader of the pack of these young group of women on tour, just given the amount of success we've seen over a variety of surfaces? Well, I, she's she's almost there. I think that Wimbledon is going to be, and this is, you know, we talked off air before the podcast. I'm so looking forward to Wimbledon. One, one reason is that, you know, if Barty does deliver and win Wimbledon, what this will mean is you'll have Naomi Osaka winning the two hardcourt majors in a row, and then you'll have Barty winning the two organic surface majors, clay and grass, consecutively. So they would be really the two of them at the top of the sport. So Wimbledon is really Barty's attempt to say, I'm right there with you, Naomi, at the top. That, that, that's the question that's going to be litigated among many others uh, at Wimbledon. But like in terms of who's the best young player in women's tennis, it's either Osaka or Barty. And I think Barty gets to make her case at Wimbledon. And I, you know who else will want to make a case at Wimbledon? Amanda Nisimova, who's made the round of 16 so far at at least at both Grand Slams and just 
again, our, I think the women's game is in such good hands. And that kind of leads us to a perfect transition to our talk about the men's final because coming into this, you know, we talked about the scheduling aspect already, but, you know, Dominic team, he wins the Masters at Indian Wells, wins in Barcelona, I think loses in two other quarterfinals uh, to maybe Djokovic uh, along the way uh, throughout this clay season. And, Coming into it, it, it was always, you know, is anyone going to be a threat to Nadal? That's always the the question comes French Open time. And Novak Djokovic, having won the previous three Grand Slams, uh, he obviously has earned himself the right to be considered a favorite. Roger Federer's Roger Federer. Uh, but you kind of wrote about Dominic Team and him beating Djokovic and what that kind of means uh, on tennis with an accent. You said Dominic Team complicates his career for all the right reasons. Now, you prefaced it saying, you know, if he wins tomorrow, this article is rubbish. And I don't think that was true at all. Uh, there are also a couple other things we can kind of pick about as we go along. But just in general, for Dominic Team, the run of success he's had, you know, since Indian Wells at 2019. It makes me think we are, you know, that much closer to that post. You called it a big three. That hurts me as an Andy Murray fan. So I'm going to say big four era. Uh, it's entirely fair to say big four. It's just, you know, the big three are the Murray's hasn't been active for most of the past few years. Um, and, and the big three, you know, in terms of their ultimate trophy count, just on a higher plane, but Murray, Murray should not be forgotten in that. He's got two gold medals right now that's staring at you in argument. That's right. Like can't 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 overlook those. Not at all. Especially since you know the the, the performances Murray delivered, uh, especially against Del Potro and Rio. I was in tears, but that that's a topic for another time. It merited tears. It was that emotional. <laughs> um, so, so the thing with team is well, there are a lot of things, but you know, in terms of this notion of complicating his career in the right ways and for the right reasons, that notion comes from the fact that you know he's made two major finals now. More than Tomas Birdik, more than Joe Wilfred Sanga. You know, he has already climbed over a bunch of players who have been stuck on one major final uh, for a long time. Yet, at the same time, while vaulting over those uh, other still active players, so much of what team has done at the majors is, is in that one bucket, that one silo, clay. So... A year ago at this time, we were talking about how Dominic Team could, you know, basically tie his shoelaces uh, in, in tournaments other than the French Open. And then he did that. So now the conversation does become more complicated. We're seeing Team become a fuller and more complete player across. So we're not, you know, confining him to this simple first grade uh, standard of, oh, can you make a quarterfinal anywhere? That we don't need to ask that anymore. So now we're asking about, all right, is is team a very good player ready to you know take that leap to the very top tier of the sport? And he could. I know I could see him making the U.S. Open final right now. You know, if he gets the right draw, uh, you know, gets a you know a, a, a particular bracket break in his section, he might even be able to beat Nadal straight up, given how close he was to Rafa. A year ago at the U.S. Open, and we also know that Rafa, in terms of playing a lot of time on hard courts, you know, Rafa might not be fresh enough uh, to go the distance at the U.S. Open. So we're in this very interesting period now with team that, you know, it, because he was able to beat Djokovic a second time at Roland Garros, he did it in 2017. This time, yes, there was the wind, and we know Djokovic is not a good wind player, but Djokovic was healthy 
And in 2017, when team beat Djokovic in Roland Garros, he was not. So this was a very affirming, sustaining kind of win for team over Djokovic and the kind of win that makes you say, all right, even though it was on clay, team is really becoming a good player independent of which surfaces he's on. Can he now develop that holistic profile uh, to a higher level? That's why team's career is more complicated, but it's clearly for good reasons rather than bad. You look at Dominic Team's career or statistics over his career, three titles on hard court, one on grass. Uh, he's got nine titles on the clay, but you look at it, he's made four hard court finals, one grass court final, and 16 on clay. So yeah, I think it's fair to say he was obvious, obviously known for his proficiency on the dirt. Now, I kind of, uh, you, look, you don't get into the top 10 of the world without producing some level of results outside of the clay, regardless how well you do on that one surface. It's just very, very, very difficult to sustain a top 10 ranking if that's you're only doing well at one portion of the year. Now, I agree with you. For me, the match that stood out as, you know, where I started thinking to myself, oh, wow, I really think Dominic Team is ready to compete with the, you know, big three, big four now. And, uh, you know, they, there was a lot of talk throughout the broadcast of his record versus those guys being, you know, compared to his contemporaries a little bit better. Um, but his matchup last year against Rafa in the quarterfinals of the U.S. Open I mean, Rafa, I believe, had just played catching off the round before, and it looked like he was, you know, already wounded, but team broke him, right? He had the, you know, the nail in the Rafa knee just pegging away, making him go side to side to side on the cement, and I just had never seen someone rope Rafa around the court in the way that Dominic team had, and going into his semifinal match against Djokovic this year, I I actually comfortably felt to myself, I think Dominic Team is the favorite simply because regardless of the surface, regardless of his opponent, you just cannot replicate the sort of racket speed, the sort of pace, the sort of depth he's able to produce with his ground strokes no matter what position he's on on the court. And you, and this, I promise, sorry for this rant, but you mentioned earlier, you know, you don't want to talk about the weather's the reason or the scheduling's the reason everything broke beautifully for Rafa. And we'll never know the answer to this question, but I swear if you had given Dominic team a day of rest and he, you know, they talked about, I think he asked for a Monday final and the French Open said no. No, I think he could have hit Nadal off the court. I think he was playing that well. He, at times, was a little too uh, consistently going to the Nadal backhand, letting Nadal get into a rhythm. But when he was hitting, you know, with no fear, when he was going after that ball in the second set, he was hitting inside-out forehands to the Rafa forehand saying, you know, I dare you to go down the line with it because I'm going to cover that ball, and now you're running cross-court, Rafa. So, you know, while, while, while I do think that the first commandment of the tennis Bible is trust Rafa at Roland Garros, <laughs> I, I would also say that what, that what you've just uh, commented on, there's a lot of merit to that. And I think that I do think that if team had gotten Sunday off, we would have seen four very tight sets, maybe five, that it would have been a, a fundamentally close match the whole way. I think that, you know, if we had a Monday final and if team had had one day of rest, one of the bigger things that would have helped team is the fact that he beat, not only beat Djokovic, but he beat Djokovic in very adverse conditions. You know, so it's one thing to beat Novak freaking Djokovic in a major semifinal. That's impressive enough in its own right. But the fact that team choked and the fact that the conditions were nasty 
for him and his single-handed backhand, the fact that he surmounted all of those difficulties, what an enormous confidence boost that was. So if rest and uh, recuperation had been just a little more balanced, the idea that we would have seen Dominic Team in better weather conditions play his absolute best, there's a lot of credence to give to that notion. And that's, that's part of why the scheduling is, is, you know, something that we are forced to talk about. We don't want to talk about it, but we are forced to talk about it. And you just look at it. I, I completely agree with you. And you look at it though, from the tennis angle, as you mentioned, I mean, team did those first two sets, the level of tennis, and even in the third set uh, at the beginning was just so incredibly high. Now, you know, towards the end, as we mentioned, Rafa kind of coasted and it was just a little, you know, too many high loopy balls to the team backhand when he's got to swing when he's so far behind the court. You can only imagine how exhausting that is. But again, Dominic team was not afraid to attack in this match. And Paul Anico, I was listening to the Tennis Channel replay. He kept emphasizing that the way to attack Rafa is not to consistently attack the backhand side, but to have the confidence to go to his forehand side and then subsequently force him to hit on the run backhands. And I mean, Dominic team, he swung away. He did everything you could have asked him to do in this match. You know, he makes 69% of his first serves. Uh, he goes an efficient 12 of 15 at the net, earns himself six break chances, but in the end, just too much Rafa. What I love from Rafa, maybe the thing, the least heralded thing about his game that I appreciate the most is just his stubbornness and willingness to say, oh, you're going to try and pick on my backhand? That's fine, righty. I'm going to go right back with a backhand down the line and make you play another backhand. And then just the ease with which he's able to elevate his backhand, uh, you know, a high top spin shot with plenty of depth to force team, you know, six feet behind the baseline it's just it looks so it's just i you never get tired of it from rafa you don't and what to me the the, the essential characteristic of nadal which was very much present in the third and fourth sets of this final uh it's it's kind of a cousin of 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 what you said that he'll go right back at you for me it's a little bit more in terms of the mentality and that rafa just is always there he always makes you feel him and the shape of his ball that, you know, a team, I think mentally, even more than physically, you know, went away for a little bit of that third set. And he commented on this in the match that, you know, when you have a little drop or a dip against most players, you can still hang in there. But when you have a drop or a dip against Rafa, especially on clay, you know, you get demolished. <laughs> you just, And that is the product of someone who is always there, not so much physically, but mentally always present always energized, always invested. Uh, Rafa's presence on the court, you know, it, that can seem like such an empty, jargony, cliche-flavored uh, term, but uh, Rafa really embodies it. And I think Rafa is really the example of it for people who struggle to grasp that word presence. That's what Rafa has that, you know, only Djokovic can really compare with Federer to a, to a certain extent, though it's really kind of different. Federer is more of the guy who's going to, you know, hit that huge that clutch serve right on both lines, you know, break point down. Federer's kind of the performer. Obviously, he Federer's a big fighter, but Federer is a little bit more performer. Rafa is certainly a performer as well in terms of the, how he can wave the magic wand, but it's a little more central to Rafa that his presence just makes you feel 
the intensity of a match such that when as as soon as you drift, oh, you blink and you're down four to one after playing two incredible sets in a Roland Garros final. And just you could tell when team got tired that when he's that far behind the baseline, the backhand would sit up a little bit, and then Rafa is driving his backhand cross court and just tracking that ball down on the clay gets so exhausting. Rafa makes seventy three percent of his first serves, wins seventy three percent of those points, a tidy twenty three of twenty seven at the net, eighty five percent conversion rating. That's just you know late stage Rafa as a volleyer. That's one of the places where he's really grown the most. He even throws in the serve and volley, you know when team standing as far as he does on the return to keep him off balance. Yeah, I agree with you. It was a textbook Rafa Nadal uh, performance in this final. Now, of course, people could see and will say that the draw broke beautifully for Rafa. You know, his biggest threat was uh, well-rested Roger Federer, who he's played a bazillion times at the French Open. So you know how that's going to, you know, you know Rafa knows how to approach that match. He only drops uh, two sets along the way to win, again, his 12th French Open. I know uh, you have to go soon. So just, you know, final thoughts on all that was Rafa Nadal in this 2019 French Open? Uh, the main final point to emphasize about Rafa is that, you know, this was his worst clay season other than the yeah. 2015 and 2016 years. You know, didn't even make a final in Monte Carlo or Barcelona or Madrid. That's a very, very rare drought for him. And more than that, he played some really mystifying sets Fanini again in Monte Carlo and that third set against Tsitsipas in Madrid. It was just so unusual for him to struggle on routine rally balls the way he did uh, in that third set. And so there were so many points along the way in 2019 where it was easy for an outsider to say, oh, Rafa just doesn't have it this year. I guess it's going to be Djokovic at the French or maybe team. Nope. Rafa did it. Rafa reset. Rafa regrouped. He 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 wins this tournament, Roland Garros, under the best of circumstances. You know, when he had his empire rocking and rolling, 2006, 8, uh, 7, 8, 10, 11. Uh, but he also won in 2014 when a lot of people thought that Djokovic was going to storm the castle. And then I think 2019, even more than 2011 and 2014, it's really the ultimate testament to how the, the lead-up clay events can go wrong, but Rafa gets it right at Roland Garros. I, I will end with this as well. You, you talk about all of that success. The biggest question for me coming out of this, everyone knows how good Novak Djokovic is, but how f***ing well must Robin Soderling have played to beaten Rafa at the French Open? Like I just feel like more and more it's like I cannot believe he did that. Totally. I mean, you know, it, it was only Soderling in 09 and Djokovic in 15 Ridiculous. have done this. And and in 2015, we know that Rafa was going through physical changes and all the um, emotional challenges that went with it. Soderling's 2009 conquest really is one of a kind. It's one of it's a must watch on YouTube if you haven't already. Well, we I wanted to do a winners and losers with you, but I want to be conscious of your time. And in fact, I'm going to use this as my opportunity to reserve the right to call you back, Matt. Um, but seriously, thank you so much for taking the time to break down the French Open, talk about the scheduling. I was serious when I said I don't think I read a better piece on it than yours at tennis with an accent. And with that in mind, I want to give you one last chance. Where can our listeners find you? Uh, how can they support your work? 
Yeah, so tennisaccent.com is our website. On Twitter, it's accent underscore tennis. And my partner, uh, who who hosts most of the Tennis with an Accent podcast, Saqib Ali, you can find him at S-A-Q-I-B-A. Uh, so support him. And then we do have a GoFundMe that we post every now and then um, to support. You know, we do have people like Mert Ertunga, who writes the best match reports in the business, as far as I'm concerned. He's at Murtov's T-Desk the letter T desk on Twitter. You know, we want be able to be able to pay Mert and other members of our uh, staff, other our contributors for their articles, but that only happens with donor support. So, uh, you know, that that's uh, you can, you can get our GoFundMe. In fact, I'm going to post the GoFundMe on my Twitter page at MZemic just so that it's there. Um, and then we put out a podcast once a week and we're working on some great guests uh, for uh, Wimbledon and the grass season. So, that's where you can find us at tennisaccent.com, also on Twitter at our various Twitter accounts. Awesome. Well, you got to plug your partner. I won't let any podcast finish without plugging our super producers, Max Flingner and Daniel Westoff, who, as always, have an editing job to do and really did kill it throughout the entire French Open streak. Uh, if you miss anything and you've you you know you've already checked out tennis with an accent because how could you not have throughout this uh, you know two-week French Open stretch, be sure to check out our website, crackrackets.com, keeping you up to date on all things going on in the tennis world. Like, rate, subscribe this podcast as well as our others, the Cracked Interviews podcast, Great Shot Pod, What the Deuce. We have a ton of great content coming your way as well. To make that adjustment to the grass season, which, as we talked about earlier, Matt, I cannot believe it's already that time of the year. Just a crazy thing to think about. But seriously, thank you so much to you. Um, Oh, and you may not know this, but to all of our listeners, we like to end by saying, as it's the mini break podcast in the theme, we tell them that's the break. So if you would, Matt, how do we end with our listeners? That's the break. I love it. And thank you again so much. 